0: Hello, and welcome to our podcast here at Discovery Point Church. Thank you for joining us today. We pray this message inspires you and is the beginning of a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Good morning to you online. Welcome to Discovery Point Church. Uh, Thank you for being here as we have had a sweet time to worship our great God and King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. and I just love that last song, that sing hallelujah, Just, just a beautiful song. Jesus is so worthy. Amen? Amen. 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 Why don't we pray? We'll we'll get into God's word today. Father, thank you for just a sweet time of worship. Lord, just to sing songs of praise to your name and be reminded just how good you have been to each and every one of us. We love you, and we do say hallelujah to your name. Lord, as we come to your word today, our prayer uh, is that you would speak to our hearts, that you would prepare us. Uh, for this Christmas season, that we might grow closer to you today. Uh, So Holy Spirit, have your way, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's okay to say Merry Christmas, right? Yeah, Yeah, we're through with Thanksgiving, and so Merry Christmas. Uh, The season's finally here. Uh, As Pastor Greg said, it's a little chilly outside. It feels like wintertime. All we need is some snow, and we'll be, you know... Uh, That that air of excitement is in the air, the the radio stations are playing Christmas music 24 hours a day, and the world is just at peace, right? It's just a great time, it's a great time to be alive. According to legend, Satan and his demons were having a Christmas party, and as the demonic guests were departing, one grinned and said to Satan, Merry Christmas, your majesty. At that, Satan replied with a growl, yes, keep it merry. If they ever get serious about it, we'll all be in trouble. And the writer of this little parable goes on to say, well, get serious about it. It is the birth of the baby. It is the coming of God. It is the intervention of God's presence among men. You know, uh, last week, matter of fact, this week, uh, my son came to me and said, Dad, do you think that Christmas is a pagan holiday? And I thought, that's a great question. And I thought for a minute, and I said, well, Christmas is really what you make of it. I mean, it can, you can make it a pagan holiday. You can focus on the gifts and, and the stores and the buying and the parties. You can focus on all of that stuff. Uh, like the culture does, and you can make it pagan. Or you can focus on the reason that we celebrate the birth of our Savior and what he came to do. I said, the Bible doesn't tell us to celebrate Christmas. But it doesn't say, don't celebrate Christmas. And this is the day that we choose to celebrate the birth of Jesus and what he came to do for us. So I think that gave him some things to think about as he's having conversations with with other people. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to do just that. We're going to focus on on our king, our coming king. Because we want DPC as a body to have a deeper experience with our King we want his coming to be more important this year than it was last year in each and every one of our lives you know his coming was important to the first century and it's equally important here in the 21st century and so we're gonna kick off our our examination of of the coming King Today with why he came and so I just want to invite you if you've got a Bible turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61 Isaiah Chapter 61 Isaiah is in the Old Testament if you find the Psalms in the middle of Psalms and Proverbs turn to the right But Isaiah chapter 61 And I want to kind of set the stage. This is okay with you. I want to set the stage for why the king had to come. Is that okay? All right. So I want to go back to the beginning. And not the very beginning, but close to the very beginning. Uh, It was a time when there was turmoil in the world. Where where sin was rampant um, because of the heart of man. And God called a man named Abram out of the land of Ur, which is today, it's in southern Iraq. And God called this man Abram, and he tells him this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He tells him, "Um, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And he says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And at the time, Abram had no children. But as God would have it, as as time passed, uh, Abram had Isaac. Isaac had, had, had Jacob and Esau. And it was through Jacob that God brought forth this nation of people called the nation of Israel. And God set these people apart, not because of who they were or what they had done, but for his own goodwill, he chose this people. And he gave this people his law, how he expected them to live, how he expected them to conduct themselves, so that they would be a light to all the other pagan nations, so that they could teach the nations through their living about the goodness and the greatness and the holiness and the righteousness of their God, so that the world could see God through their living. And so God gave them everything that he wanted them to know, and they failed miserably. Time and time and time again, uh, they would fail, God would forgive them, he would restore them, they would serve God, they would fail, and this cycle continued and continued for some 1,200 years. So that by the time we get to Isaiah, God is... He's had it. He's had it with the sin. And if you're in Isaiah, I want you to go with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah was written somewhere between 750 and 700 B.C. And so this is some some 1,200 years after God calls Abram. And chapter 1 of Isaiah really sets the tone for the remainder of the book, all 66 chapters. It sets the tone. So look, at, look with me, Isaiah chapter one, beginning in verse one, verses one through four. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Verse two, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks, Sons have I reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. Not like today, by the way. Um, They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised... The Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from him. And so this is the state of the nation of Israel since their beginning. And God has gotten to the point where he is sick and tired of their sin. And so he starts to turn their face, his face away from them by pronouncing judgment. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. Where it says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, he's talking to Judah, and he's talking to Jerusalem. But their sin is so great that he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals. And your appointed feasts, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. You think God has had had enough of Israel's sin? He's tired of it. They have wearied him, but he offers them grace in the midst of impending judgment. Uh, Drop down to verse 16. God says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are, are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are like red, red like crimson, they will be like wool, which is white, by the way. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so God gives Israel, he gives Judah this choice you can choose to listen and obey and good things will happen or you can choose to disobey and judgment will come. This is pretty clear, right? And so Israel chose to not listen to God. Israel chose to go their own way. Israel chose to rebel against God. So much so, that by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 5, if you turn there, God says, I'm done. I tried, you wouldn't listen, I'm done. Go to Isaiah chapter 5, look at verse 1 with me, where Isaiah writes, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with with the choicest vines. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard what more was there for me? What more was, was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Verse 5. So now let me tell let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will, I will break down its walls and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. This is God talking. This is what he's going to do to it. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of Distress. And so God pronounces judgment on the nation of Judah and the men of Jerusalem. And the first matter of fact, go to chapter six with me. This is where God calls Isaiah. In chapter six, beginning at verse nine, God calls Isaiah. In verse 9, he says, He's and he said, Go talking to Isaiah. This is God talking, and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, not sensitive, but insensitive. Their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said the Lord, how long? And he answered until cities are devastated and without inhabitant houses, are without people, and the land is utterly desolate." And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, there is doom, and there is gloom, and there is judgment that God has promised because of Jerusalem's sin, because of Judah's sin. And God promises to send them into captivity through Assyria and on to Babylon, where they will pay for the penalty for their sins for disobeying God, for turning their backs on God. However, chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah, God gives them a glimmer of hope that even though judgment is coming, God promises to restore them. He promises to do some things that will bring them out of captivity. He promises to bless them. But first, there will be judgment. But God promises them, that he will send a redeemer, he will send a savior, that he will send a king to come and rescue them. And Isaiah tells us, now we get to our text, in Isaiah chapter 61, he tells us what this king is going to do and why he came. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61, where we will see what the king Who is coming will do and we will learn why he came Isaiah chapter 61 uh, beginning at verse 1 uh, Isaiah writes the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me let me stop here don't miss this the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me don't miss the Trinity In this verse, the spirit of the Lord God is present because the Lord, that's Yahweh, that is God's covenant name, because the Lord has anointed me. So you've got the spirit and you've got the father and you've got the son. And we know this because in Luke chapter four, verse 18, Jesus quotes this scripture and he tells the synagogue today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so you've got the Trinity here. And so God, working through the king that is coming, he is is anointed by the Father, and he will come in the power of the Holy Spirit. He will be set apart for a particular purpose. You know, the word Messiah means anointed one. And God is going to anoint him, and he will come in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what's he going to do? first thing he's going to do is he's going to bring good news to the afflicted. He's going to bring good news to the afflicted. He's going to proclaim glad tidings, good tidings. So what's the good news? Well, if you keep reading through the Old Testament, by the time you get to the end of the Italian prophet Malachi, by the time you get to the end of his letter, we know him as Malachi. By the time you get to the end of his, his, his little letter, God doesn't speak for some 400 years. And God is silent. He doesn't speak through an angel. He doesn't send a prophet. There's no text. There's no, there's no social media post. God is absolutely silent for some 400 years. But when the king comes, he will bring good news to the afflicted. That God has heard your prayers. That God is no longer silent. That God will be with his people. Pastor Garrett read that earlier today. That they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God will be with his people in a more permanent way. That God himself will make a way for peace between his people and God the Father. That he will restore their relationship. They would no longer have to keep the law which they could not keep. And that they won't, they would no longer have to sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats to cover their sins. That God was sending someone, He was sending His own sacrifice who would die once for all. And that death would take away sin, not cover it, but take it away. And so that was the good news for the afflicted. Well, who, who are the afflicted? These are the poor. Not those who have no money. But these are the poor in spirit. These are those who were bowed down in humility because they have no hope. These are those who were, again, poor in spirit. They have no way in and of themselves of pleasing a holy God. These are those who were sin sick. I like that term. Who are sin sick because their lives are riddled and infected by sin and they don't see a way out. These are the oppressed who were oppressed by the culture. These are the meek, those who have that, that strength under control. These are those who were sorrowful over their sin, and again, who have no way of pleasing God. Spurgeon explains this group this way. He says, "...they are humble and feel their need of salvation. He is gracious and bestows it upon them. They lament their deformity, and He puts a beauty upon them of the choicest sort." He saves them by sanctifying them, and thus they wear the beauty of holiness and the beauty of a joy which springs out of full salvation. He makes his people meek and then makes the meek beautiful. Herein is grand argument for worshiping the Lord with the utmost exultation. He who takes such a pleasure in us must be approached with every token of exceeding joy. These are the afflicted. The spiritually poor, those who in and of themselves cannot please God. They are spiritual paupers, spiritually destitute, spiritual beggars, those who are afflicted by sin and have no way out. They've come, He has come to proclaim good news to the afflicted. Good news to the poor. That's the first reason. But there's a second reason Isaiah tells us in in, in verse 1, where he says that he has sent me, God has sent this king, the son, to bind up the brokenhearted. I love this. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, has sent his son to bind up the brokenhearted. The idea here is that when the king comes, that he will take the broken hearts of his people. And when you see heart, in the Hebrew mind, don't think this muscle that is pumping blood throughout our bodies. The the idea, the the word means the bowels. The bowels. It's it's, it's where our our emotion and, and our will and our mind, it's where they spring from, where our intellect, it's where they spring from. And so when the king comes, He will take your crushed life, your shattered life, your shattered feelings. He will take those broken plans and that life that has been trampled on, those thoughts that continue to condemn us day in and day out. He will bind them up as one gathers a a broken pottery and he will put them back together. For his glory he will take your broken life and he will make it new and I got to tell you I'm a witness Uh, because back in the early 90s God took this broken life and it was broken oh my gosh and he put it back together and it's better than before that's why Paul tells the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Because when the king comes, he will take up, he will bind up the brokenhearted. And he will make your life new for his glory. Amen? The third thing that he will do when the king comes is that he will proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. He will proclaim liberty to the captives. Here's the idea. Those who have been taken away in chains because of war or because of exile, those who were confined, Here's the idea, those who are imprisoned because of sin, those who are ensnared because of sin, the king when he comes, he is going to proclaim liberty. The idea is he's going to proclaim, you can be redeemed from your sin. There is redemption in the king when he comes. And that redemption will be through his blood when one day he will die on a cross for the world. And he will shed his blood and give his life for his people. Matthew tells us that he will save his people from their sins. And so he's going to liberate us from the penalty of sin, which is separation from God. And he will give us eternal life with God. Well, who were the captives, Rod? I I think about the woman caught in adultery. Caught in the very act of adultery. You know what she found? She found liberty. I think about the the woman, the sinner woman at the Pharisee's table who was crying at Jesus' feet and washing his feet with her hair, bringing shame upon herself. She found liberty. I think about the uh, Zacchaeus, the... Uh, The tax collector who was cheating people, he found liberty when he encountered the king. Think about the Samaritan woman who was at the well at noon gathering water by herself when this Jewish man comes along. And as you know, Samaritans and Jews, they they don't talk to one another. They don't like each other. But she found liberty when she encountered the king. And I think about the demoniac who was living in the tombs in the graveyards, a wild man, a crazy man, we might call him today, he found liberty and a right mind when he encountered the king. These captives found liberty through the king that came, and they trusted him. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 18, he says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, past tense, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, he says it again, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul reminds us there is freedom from sin in Jesus Christ. And that freedom, that same freedom, is available today. Amen? But Isaiah says that he will proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Here's what's interesting. In the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Septuagint was used throughout the first century. And the Septuagint translates freedom to prisoners as recovery of sight. That there will be recovery of sight to the blind. You Remember Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 through 10? God tells Isaiah, I want you to go. And he says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Well, when Jesus come, when the king comes, he is going to give recovery of sight to those who are not only physically blind, but also spiritually blind. He is going to open spiritual eyes so that people can perceive not only who he is, but the kingdom and find salvation through him. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 146. Uh, Feel free to turn there, but I just want to read. Here's here's what he says. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm uh, 146. He says this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord of his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is within them, who keeps faith forever. Verse seven, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteousness. The Lord protects the stranger. The Lord supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. And the psalmist, long before Isaiah began to write, takes a portion of what Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 61 about what the coming king will do. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will proclaim liberty to the captives. Here's the fourth reason the king will come. Uh, Isaiah 61, look at verse 2a. Is that uh, he will, he's coming to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I'm going to stop there. There's no period there. There's a comma there in the scripture. But Jesus stops here. in 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 Luke chapter Luke chapter 4 because after proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord Isaiah continues in in verse 2 and the day of vengeance of our God that hasn't come yet so we are still in this favorable year of the Lord and when this king comes It'll be a time to rejoice. It'll be a time to celebrate. It'll be a time to give thanks and worship our God and praise our God. Why? Because he has come to shower his people with grace, with unmerited favor. And it is a year of favor. And y'all, look, this isn't just regular common grace. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says to his disciples, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. Here it is. Here's common grace. For he causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is common grace. But when the king comes, he won't bring common grace. He will bring a very special grace Grace, that where he will allow his people to exist and live in literally a a sphere of grace, where grace will envelop them and will always be available. No matter where you find yourself, no matter what you're going through, grace will be available when the king arrives. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, he says, through whom, talking about Jesus, this king that is coming, also we have obtained, here it is, our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand or in which we exist, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. You see, in the first century, people were oppressed by the Romans. They were heavily taxed. Uh, inflation. Was, was, was quite high. The ruling class was corrupt. Morality was considered outdated. Government bribes were on the rise. The culture was divided. Religion was on the rise. Taxes were on the increase. And there were cultural and ethnic clashes constantly. But it was at that time At the right time, Paul says in Romans 5, 6, it was at that time, when things were at their worst, that the king came, anointed by the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring good news to the afflicted, to, to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedoms to the prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord even here in the 21st century, we see the very same thing. We're not oppressed by the Romans, but we're oppressed by a lot of other things. Taxes are on the rise. Inflation is rising. The ruling class is corrupt. Morality is considered outdated. The culture is divided. Religion is the religion of the day. Inflation is on the rise. And there are cultural and ethnic tensions everywhere. And our greatest need, like in the first century, was not to find relief from the culture, but was to find relief from sin. And the very same king who offered grace in the first century is offering grace today. And if you don't know this king that came, I hope you get to know him. If you belong to him, our hope here at DPC is that this Christmas, you would experience our King in a more intimate way. That your Christmas would be more about him and less about the things that we buy and give. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. We pray you allow this message to transform you to take what you learned and share the love of Jesus to those around you. You can stay informed and connected by following Discovery Point Church on all social media platforms. Thank you and God bless you.